This is C-SPAN's Afterwards podcast. This week, Daily Beast's Matt Lewis discusses his book, Filthy Rich Politicians. He explores how American politics is fueled by wealth and offers reforms on how to hold elected officials more accountable. He's interviewed by Real Clear Politics columnist and associate editor, A.B. Stoddard. So, Matt, it's wonderful to be with you, and it's a delight to be able to get to do this with you. Uh, we've known each other for years, and I find you to be a singularly happy and hopeful and patriotic person. And I think anyone who cares about our system of governance and representation will uh, learn a lot from your hard work and your deep research. Um, despite the subtitle, The Swamp Creatures, Latte Liberals and Ruling Class Elites Cashing in on America... Um, you do not aim with filthy rich politicians to enrage your fellow citizens. Um, uh, you instead outline rational, doable, common sense reforms that we can all support and we should. Um, so um, let's dig right in. Uh, why does it matter that politicians are rich, um, even if there's a perception that they are allowed uh, to feather their nests? Yeah, well, Look, I think that the reason it matters is that it is eroding trust in liberal democracy and elected officials. And uh, we have seen a correlation, I would say, in the last four or five decades between the gap widening between our elected officials and normal um, average Americans. Uh, And at the same time, we've seen the erosion of trust in our elected officials. Now, that parallels a loss of trust in a lot of institutions. Um, but politicians are actually at the bottom, you know, members of Congress specifically, uh, less popular than colonoscopies, essentially. Uh, so that's that's why the book matters. And um, have they always been richer than the rest of us? I think that clearly uh, politicians in general have generally been people who are richer. And certainly if you look at presidents, George Washington was incredibly wealthy. We think of Franklin Roosevelt, Theodore Roosevelt. It's a lot. Donald Trump. It's a long list. Uh, I think the real difference is the lower chamber, members of the House of Representatives. Uh, And since about the time I was 10 years old, uh, their wealth has doubled. And meanwhile, the wealth of the average person has kind of been a flat line and in some case gone down. Uh, I'm talking about adjusted for inflation and uh, and, and, and things like that. Um, there is a right now the average member of Congress is about 12 times richer than the average American household. And so I think as that gap has grown, uh, some of the distrust and the sense is that the game is rigged. And, um, you know, there are politicians who I think talk about the game being rigged, talk about the swamp in order to exploit it uh, and to sort of play on populist sympathies. But the truth is they kind of do have a point, as illustrated in the book. Meanwhile, they are it. (laughs) So populism is rising because uh, there's a tension inherent in the fact that Americans can no longer count on uh, jobs that provide a living wage. Meanwhile, they're represented by people who are wealthier than them who continue to get wealthy while they are public servants. Um, Yet, yet, um, being loaded does not seem to be such a problem because in your book, you note that rich incumbents, though they're hit on this by their opponents all the time, often win. Yeah. Why? How? Usually. Well, I think it's partly the same reason that people can hate on Congress in general, but they vote for their own congressmen. 
And so, like, in North Dakota, for example, John Hoven is a very, very wealthy U.S. senator. And in the decade or so that he's been in Congress, his wealth has doubled, and his opponent tried to use it against him, and it didn't work at all. And we see this happening in many, many races. Uh, uh, Don Beyer in, in Vir- Virginia, the, the very rich car dealer, uh, had, it was used against him in a Democratic primary last cycle. Didn't work at all. Um, and I think that basically it doesn't resonate as a campaign issue against a specific member. But I think that collectively, this sense that politicians are getting rich, or they're richer than us, which is a little bit problematic, but they're oftentimes using their perch to feather their nest. I think that has the effect of kind of eroding trust in the institution, uh, even if you still vote for your own member of Congress. So you list the 10 richest presidents, which I was fascinated by. Donald Trump tops the list with uh, John F. Kennedy uh, behind him, whose peak uh, net worth, you know, it was $1.1 billion. Who right now is the richest uh, politician? In the right country? now, it's J.B. Pritzker, who's the governor of Illinois, is the richest politician in America. Um, that Interesting. His family, I believe there are 11 billionaires in his family. Um, I think it's the Hyatt fortune, the Hyatt Hotels fortune, if I'm not mistaken. And in his race, his last race uh, for uh, governor of Illinois, there were actually three billionaires running in that race alone. So that's the kind of money we're talking about. The richest senator right now, uh, we believe, and by the way, always have to have a little bit of an asterisk here. Politicians make it impossible to know exactly how rich they are. They have to they have to report uh, their their finances, but it's very broad ranges. There are certain things that they don't have to report. That that so we believe it's Rick Scott uh, from Florida, former governor, current senator, would be the richest member of Congress. So um, you write about a system where the rich get elected and the elected get rich. Um, why do these rich people even want the job? Uh, I think there are a bunch of reasons why uh, why rich people run. Um, some of it, I think, is they really want to do good. I, I, like, I don't buy the argument that they're running to cut their own tax rate or, or something like that. I, I, don't, I, I think that's overplayed. They could, it's be easier to own politicians than to be one. Uh, I think some of these politicians are running because rich people are running uh, because they really think they can make a difference. Um, in some cases, I think it's like the transitive property of expertise you know, they believe because I was great at cloud computing, I can fix our healthcare system. Uh, I think that's a little bit naive. I mean, I know I've worked in, in my past life uh, when I was in, working literally in politics. I've worked for politicians who were very successful in one thing, business, military, whatever. And it wasn't necessarily transferable to government or to even campaigning. But I think that's a natural sense. Um I think also politicians want to run for office for the same reason. I'm sorry, rich people want to run for office for the same reason that rich people want to like buy rocket rides into outer space or own baseball teams. You know, they're bored and it's something something for them to do. Um, and at the end of the day, I in a way, I, I, I understand there's something nice about rich people going into politics because I feel like I'd be on a beach somewhere like, you know, like drinking, you know, a Coors Light or whatever beer you you prefer. Um, I don't know that I would actually want to go into public service. So in a way, I admire it. 
But I do think it's troubling when the average person representing us is like 12 times richer than us. I mean, it's, it's hard to believe that, um, that they really are in touch with, with the average person's concerns. Having said that, I'm much less concerned about rich people running than I am about people getting elected and then cashing in. So w- regular Joes can't take leave and they can't quit their jobs to campaign. Um, so how is the system not stacked against them participating? It totally is stacked against regular Joes and not even regular Joes, even people like me, A.B. Um, a, a few maybe like a year ago, my wife and I uh, were going for a walk. I live in I live in West Virginia my dad was a prison guard for 30 years. I live in West Virginia, but I get to do this awesome job, write about politics, talk about politics. And my wife is a Republican political fundraiser. Um, and so with that as the backdrop, we're on this walk. And I was telling her, I'm like, you know, since we live in West Virginia, um, if the political environment weren't the way it is, there's a scenario where I could possibly run. I mean, there's an open governor seat in West Virginia right now. There's an open uh, you know, there's a competitive U.S. Senate seat, which opened up the House seat where I right. live. And I'm like, you know, maybe in some scenario I, I could run for that House seat. And she's like, well, no, no, you couldn't. And I'm like, well, why not? Like you're a, she's like, you don't have enough money. And I said, well, but you're a you're a political fundraiser. And I know a lot of people I've been doing this for a long time. And she said, let me tell you what I tell people who call me up who want to run and not for president, not for Senate, but just for the House. You have to either give your campaign $300,000 or raise that much money from your personal Christmas card list network before it's even worth my time to try to introduce you to political action committees or rich donors. And like even I, someone who has worked in this industry for a couple decades now, I couldn't I don't have enough money to run for the house, let alone, you know, an actual kind of Joe Sixpack out there like my dad. I was actually going to ask about that um, eye-popping factoid that comes from your bride by, uh, later. It is <laughs> oh, it's incredible. In the book, right. It's right. incredible. Um, and I think it's a great teaser for why people you know, need to buy the book. Um, when it comes to the elected getting rich, you argue that um, insider trading is the most toxic, and I agree with you. Let's be bipartisan and walk through the examples of Senator Richard Burr and uh, former House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, if you could. I find yeah. it most interesting. Well, let me start with Nancy Pelosi. Um, and I'll give you two examples that I think are pretty egregious. The first example, and it's really Nancy Pelosi's husband, Paul, yes, who yes. is doing actually doing the, uh, the investing in the stock market. And this is how they can work this out. Exactly. Yeah. Um, in 2020, Paul Pelosi... Uh, bought hundreds of thousands of dollars of stock options in Tesla. Five weeks later, Joe Biden signs an executive order mandating uh, that federal, local and state fleets begin transitioning by 2027 into zero emissions vehicles. So you can imagine what happened to the stock of Tesla after the president signed that executive order. Right. It went through the roof. Coincidence. Or inside knowledge. It seems curious to me. And the people I talk to who actually know a lot more about the market than I do say it's very suspicious. It's very sketchy. It's very swampy. Second example having to do with the Pelosi's is uh, the next year, 2021, Paul Pelosi exercises 
$10 million worth of stock options in Microsoft. This time, two weeks later, the Army announces uh, that they're going to go with Microsoft um, for these uh, headsets that they're uh, that they're ordering. I, I'm, I'm, I'm forgetting the actual word, but it's, it's basically virtual re- aug- yeah. augmented reality headsets. So in other words, um, Microsoft won a bid, in a, sort of a contract, to produce these augmented reality headsets. This could be worth billions of dollars over decades. And again, two weeks earlier, <laughs> Paul Pelosi invested... $10 million in my, no, is that a, is that a coincidence? The thing is, I'm just giving you two examples. I mean, the Pelosi's have gotten lucky very, very often. And in fact, there's even, there were, I don't know if it still exists, but there were people on social media like TikTok who were investing with the Pelosi's. Every time <laughs> that the Pelosi's made an investment, they would Always too. a good bet. And it would seem to pan out well for them. And what about Senator Richard Burr? Had a very interesting time in the, in the onset of the pandemic. Right. So think back to early on when COVID-19 uh, is starting to hit. And the average American doesn't know how bad it is. Two weeks to, you know, <laughs> in two weeks, it'll, as Donald Trump said, it's going to all be over like in the blink of an eye. Right. And I think this started before we heard the phrase two weeks to flatten yeah, the curve. Right? This would have. Yeah. So the average American at this point has no idea. We've been hearing that there's this thing in China, this virus. Uh, there's a couple cases or something, but we don't know how bad it is, is going to be in America. So Richard Burr, who at the time is a senator, but at the time he was chair of the Intel Committee. So he has access to a lot of top secret confidential meetings and information. Dumps all of his stock in things like Wyndham Hotels, the places that would be, you know, investments that would be very, very hurt by, let's say, a global pandemic. That's bad enough. But then he calls his brother-in-law. And within one minute of hanging up the phone with Richard Burr, his brother-in-law calls his broker and dumps his stock. Yeah. So coincidence seems a little bit suspicious to me. But here's the thing. Whether this is insider trading or not, it doesn't really matter in the sense that the damage done to anybody paying attention is it certainly has the appearance of impropriety. It looks like the game is rigged. And again, that is what I think has, I don't blame our problems on this, but I think it is contributing to the erosion of trust in in liberal democracy. Is there any realistic scenario that you can see for blind trust in which we can trust members to invest but remain separated from their holdings when they legislate? I don't think so. So in 2012, Congress finally passed the Stock Act, which made it illegal to engage in insider trading. I guess until then, it wasn't even illegal. You can imagine. Right. (laughs) Um, But since 2012, it's been illegal to engage in insider trading. And we've obviously, the problem has not gone away. In fact, um, perhaps it's gotten worse, but it certainly has not gone has not gone away. Now, some of the politicians that become embroiled in these controversies and things that look like insider trading will say, I have a blind trust, or my husband or my wife manages my portfolio, or I have, you know. And so I believe that in order to um, to basically end this problem, 
what we should do is ban individual stock trading for members of Congress and their families. Now, I think you should still be allowed to own a mutual fund. That's not you're not going to game the system with that. But I don't think the blind trust goes far enough in terms of quelling concerns and, and, and sort of solving like because you will still have examples of people who will uh, they'll be. I mean, when Russia invaded Ukraine, members of Congress who had invested in you name it, you know, weapons of war, they profited from that. And then they can say, well, I have a blind trust. It's still a bad look. I don't think it's asking, look, if you if you want to be in the stock market, get another job. I don't think it's asking too much for members of Congress who are making money from the taxpayers who are going to Washington to serve their country to say, OK, during this time when I'm doing this job, I'm not going to bet on the stock market. Okay, so one of the other things that one of the other ways to invest is owning property, and uh, very much enjoyed um, your details in the book about the um, affordable housing crisis champions on the left in the House, also being rental property owners. So yeah, share a little of that. Right. Well, so uh, land is. You can have insider information on land, right? So this goes back. There was a story about in the book about Dennis Hastert, the former Speaker of the House, who uh, you know bought up a whole bunch of land before a big highway was going through. He actually had it an earmark in a budget or something. And so this 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 goes back forever, right? And that is just that's but that's so corrupt. Yeah. Compared to just being a member of Congress who owns buildings where apartments are rented right. or condos, right? So this story that you're talking about is more is more recent, and it has to do with the squad. And uh, this is in the Latte Liberals chapter. Yeah. Um, and so basically what happened is during COVID, there was pressure from progressives to put a moratorium on evictions. You know, during COVID, you shouldn't, they said, you shouldn't be allowed to evict somebody from their home, um, which, you know, I can understand that. Um, but what's interesting is that these uh, progressives then also went out of the way to say, but we have to reimburse landlords. We have to pay landlords. If, if the renters can't pay, um, we have to pay the landlords. Now, again, I, as a kind of a center right, you know, columns, I, that makes perfect sense to me. But it seems a little out of step with the, what you think of the left. And it is interesting, right, because at least two members of the squad were landlords themselves. <laughs> and so it's impossible to know if it's self-serving, uh, but it seems odd and it's a little bit you know, hypocritical. And I would say convenient that uh, they were pushing for landlords to get more money, not just the tenants. Yeah, I mean, it is it is. I, I think that landlords have taken a lot of heat from the left, and we do have an affordable housing crisis. But um, at the same time, people who want, who invest their hard-earned money uh, in property, and then they and then they have rental income. Yeah, um, it's 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 completely fair game. It's not inside trading, and um, and it's just it's just interesting. But the 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 I, I urge everyone to read the Haster thing because that is just uh, really the opposite of what we send people to Congress to do to represent us. Um, what are some other ways that people uh, can get have easy access to outside income while they're and, and, and to enrich themselves while they're in, in, in office? Well, one way that I think seems underwhelming when, when I bring this up to people, they they 
they don't seem outraged at this one, but it's book deals. Um, I think book deals are a big way. In fact, literally, you know, as, as we're talking just a couple weeks ago, Ron DeSantis became a millionaire because of a book deal. Now, Ron DeSantis, about five years ago, had a negative net wealth. I think he was like in the red $300,000 or something like that. As recently as six months ago, he had a net worth of about $300,000, something like that. Now he is a millionaire, and it's because of a book deal. Of course, he wouldn't have the book deal if he wasn't in politics, right? And so um, that's a way that he's kind of cashing in off of his the fame that he's accrued um, from politics. What makes it even sketchier, though, is that what happens is like a lot of these uh, members of Congress will write a book, and then uh, instead of normal people wanting to go out and buy the book, there will be bulk purchases of that book. So you'll have like a political committee buy 5,000 copies of that book, uh, which will, number one, put it on the bestseller lists, which could actually spark people, real people buying the book. And it's even possible that, um, that the politician who wrote the book, because of these fake, we'll call them fake, box sales, they're not organic, that, that they will make more royalties or advances. Uh, so they're personally profiting, uh, not because they wrote a great book that any normal people will ever read, uh, but because political committees and super PACs and gr- other groups will be buying it um, and maybe throwing them away or giving them away. Right. And and it wouldn't sell at the rate that a normal author could sell their books. Um, and and it, the RNC in 2020 bought $300,000 worth of Don Trump Jr.'s yeah. books. I read in the Daily Beast. Um, so what is your solution? I uh, You have an idea about how to treat um, book deals. Yeah. So right now, members of Congress, a normal member of Congress, will make uh, $174,000 a year salary, um, which is a lot more than the average American. Uh, And in in addition to that $174,000, they're allowed to make another $29,000 approximately uh, in what's called outside earned income. My proposal is that if you want to write a book, and you, you can write a book if you want, free speech. You can, you can promote that book, uh, but you can't make, if you're in Congress, you can't make more than that $30,000 total uh, that is set aside for outside earned income. I don't think that members of Congress should be profiting so much off of writing these books. And, you know, Bernie, the classic example, Bernie Sanders, this guy's a socialist. And he became a millionaire because he wrote a book. And in fact, he literally said, I'm paraphrasing, but you could look up the quote. It's essentially someone asked him about it and he said, uh, I wrote a best-selling book. You too can be a millionaire if you write a best-selling book. And I'm like, well, okay, Bernie, but, you know, I don't have like the presidential campaign to like, you know, maybe help promote that best-selling book. And the distribution list and right, all the publicity. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Um, there are pervasive myths in the public about congressional health care coverage and pensions that you dispel in your book. And you make the case that members of Congress, and I agree with you, are actually not paid enough. Yeah. Explain. So I wanted to first let me say um, I want to take away a lot of things from members of Congress. Right. I want to take away their ability 
to bet on the stock market. Yeah. I want to take away their ability to take the revolving door into lobbying. I, I want a 10-year moratorium on that. Right? I want to take away their ability to get rich on book deals. So there's a whole bunch of things that I want to take away. In return, I want to pay them more money uh, to actually focus on their real job. And, and that sounds counterintuitive to some, to some folks. Uh, because again, the average congressman's making $174,000 a year, and that's a lot. That's a lot more than most folks. But you know, they have to travel back and forth. Uh, in some cases, they have a ha- Washington D.C. is very expensive. They have a house in Washington D.C. and a house back home. Um, I I don't begrudge them making uh, making a good living, but um, but I I would rather them focus on that than on the book and the stock. Market. But I forgot your actual question. What was that? No, no. Um, what about what about the the fact that most Americans believe that they're they have the oh, right. best coverage? They're covered for life, pension for life. Everything is lined up. Um, you talk about that. That is sort of misunderstood. Yes. And while we are talking about them being filthy rich and having access to other ways to enrich themselves, it's a good thing that um, you that that you note that. It's not actually when it comes right. to healthcare and pensions what people think it is. So yeah, totally. And that. actually, it's one of the funny things about the book is I think this book is going to outrage some people who don't realize how bad it is, and then it's going to calm down some people <laughs> who are conspiracy minded and think right. it's even worse. You know, Facebook. There'll be Facebook memes that uh, will make claims. Like there's a claim that as soon as you get elected to Congress, you've got a lifetime pension. Like, which is not true. What George Santos might have George Santos true. apparently <laughs> believed it, according you to... You have good George Santos <laughs> content in here. <laughs> he told uh, a friend that if I just get elected, I'll, I've got to get elected, I have a lifetime pension. Um, actually, uh, it is, you have to serve at least five years to get a pension, uh, and then it kicks in at the age of 62. And yes, it's a good plan, but it's pretty much commensurate to what you would have if you were working a nice government job. It, it's not it's not a, a it's not as crazy or as, as glamorous as people make it out to be. Yes, it's good, uh, but you have to serve a minimum of five years and then you have to wait till you're 62. Um, so it's not as outrageous as some people as Facebook might tell you. And what about their health care? A huge issue for most Americans. It is. Again, they've got a good plan, um, but it's not, a, you know, it's not like uh, utopia for them either. I do believe, and you might you might remember this better than me, but there was something I found that's in the book that they can go to like a naval hospital yeah. in D.C. physically for free treatment. There was some there was some weird loophole like that. Um, and that would be awesome if you but were they'd in, have to be here if you were district. in D.C. Yeah. But by and large. They have a good health care plan, um, but it's not worth getting upset. But that is the la- that is not the top yeah. of my reason to be worried about filthy rich politicians. So you grew up in rural Maryland. You live in West Virginia now. Um, what uh, how did your background and your 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 life, your journey influence this book? Well, I think that, uh, you know, the, so it's about filthy rich politicians. And on one hand, I think it's important um, to understand why normal Americans, average Americans, working folks, uh, feel like the system is broke. 
and, and feel like the game is rigged. And it's hard to do that if you're in a bubble. So um, I think by virtue of coming from the background I come from and from living in West Virginia now, it's helped me stay in touch and be a little bit more sensitive to kind of the populist vibe out there. And I'm grateful for that. And I think that's helped me write the book. At the same time, though, I think my experience working in Washington, D.C., where I worked for you know years um, in politics, uh, has also led me to like realize some of these conspiracy theories are not true. There are a lot of really good people who work in politics, who are really trying to do the right thing, who are trying to do well. And um, so hopefully that's reflected in this book. Um, I do believe we need reform. I do believe we need to be sensitive to the plight of working Americans out there in the country who, who are upset. Um, I don't want people showing up at their doorsteps, though, with pitchforks and lanterns. As I write in the book, I'd rather have them showing up with well-typed resumes. And that's kind of the goal. Yeah, I, it really is important to, to tell people who are not familiar with um, the, the system and Congress um, up close that they are not all corrupt. They are some that are uh, who are, but they are not all corrupt and they're they are working hard and they're schlepping between two uh, residences and trying to educate their kids and see their aging parents. And it is a really, really it hard could be job a tough for people yeah. who want who come um, and the system disincentivizes cooperation. So it's a very frustrating. But it is a good gig, as you point out, for people who want to be greasy about it. Can you be. have so many good details in this book. And my absolute favorite one is Donald Trump's head of the Environmental Protection Agency, Scott Pruitt, who um is as corrupt as they come, uh, and people can people can look that up. Um, I'm not um, I'm not wrong that he had a weird obsession with Ritz Carlton hand lotion and sent staff out to buy it. Oh yeah, doesn't get better than that, Matt. <laughs> but what I loved also was Ron Paul, the former. He ran for president. He's a former member of Congress. He refused to give his children allowance growing up. He's a libertarian. They pride themselves, he and his son, on being um, sticklers with their office budgets in the House and the Senate. Um, yet, according to a 2012 report that you cite in your book, he had paid more than 300000 in salaries or fees to, let me read this list, his daughter, brother, grandson, daughter's mother-in-law, grandfather and grandson-in-law. Talk about being on the dole. Um, this is a real problem, isn't it? It is. It really is. And um, look, you could argue, it's like a you own a country store and you hire your family. There's a, there's like sort of a romantic thing to this, right? And even like Bobby Kennedy, he was probably a great campaign manager for JFK. Like, should Bobby Kennedy have been the campaign manager? Yes. Should he have been the attorney general? No, right? I mean, I think one of the things I call for in the book is is banning the hiring of family, uh, whether it's for campaigns or an official you know, taxpayer funded office. I just think it's it's uh, it's a bad look at, at best. Um, some of this is is uh, spouses. Some of it, it's kids. Um, I think it was was it Maxine Waters who paid her daughter. I think it was eighty thousand dollars in one year. Uh, there's just a lot of examples. Ilhan Omar directed uh, more recently. Ilhan Omar directed millions of dollars to her husband's consulting firm. And um, 
maybe he's a great consultant, right? I, I don't know. I, my wife's in the business. I would hire her, you know, if I were running. Nobody's going to Nobody's better. Nobody's going to care more about me winning, probably. Uh, so I understand that. But it also is a way to either have someone else pay to take care of your ne'er-do-well kids or B, funnel money into your own household, other people's money into your own household. Like I raise money from other people for my campaign, then I give that... I pay my spouse as a consultant who keeps a certain percentage of that, that goes back into, you know, if we're married, that's in my pocket too. So it, it's it's not a good look. And again, a lot of this is looks. Maybe some of this is completely above board. Doesn't matter. It smells swampy. That erodes trust in the system and in our officials. So, uh, how, look, how... How do the family members of Joe Biden and Donald Trump um, fit into this conversation? I don't know if you <laughs> compare them. One situation is worse than the other, but this is this is what we, you know, yes. this is what we've had with the last two presidents. First, let me compliment you on not getting to Joe Biden and Donald Trump until halfway through our conversation because. I intentionally, I mean, you, I couldn't, it was impossible for me to write a book and not talk about them. But they're not, they're not the main thrust. But they're of not your, the main thrust. Book. Right, exactly. But I, you know, so, but I, a lot of people just want to hear about them. I think they're part, definitely part of this story. Let me start with Joe Biden. Um, Joe Biden himself, unless he's the quote unquote big guy, right, in the Hunter Biden laptop, which has not been proven, has not been established. So I'm assuming that that's not true. Joe we Biden. I also don't know if Hunter was lying when he was exactly his father into conversation. I'm willing to believe Hunter lies occasionally about things. <laughs> it sounds like he has. <laughs> but Joe Biden actually was one of the poorer members of Congress for most right. of his tenure. He actually cashed in after leaving the vice presidency. He had about two or three years where he made about $15 million on things like speeches, book deals, speaking gigs, that kind of thing. Um, now, we may find out that there's a secret account somewhere to be continued. But based on what we know, Joe Biden is not one of the richer politicians. He's you know, he's rich compared to me, but he's not rich compared to most of these filthy rich politicians. But the family thing with the Bidens is really interesting, right? So it's not just Hunter. Joe Biden has two brothers, Frank and James, both of whom have recently, not just historically, but recently traded on their brother's name and position to cash in themselves with speaking gigs and consulting fees and things like that. So it's not a good look. Um, the, the Atlantic uh, had, had a story, which I quote in the book, that way back in 1988, when Joe Biden ran for president, in 1988, he raised about $11 million. 20% of that $11 million went to paying the Biden family. So Biden has certainly been a part of the spreading the wealth around of the family. But as you note, this is a bipartisan phenomenon. Trump has done so many ridiculous, sketchy things that we don't have enough time for me to get into. But I think the family thing is very interesting. Like he unlike everybody else, Trump literally put his daughter and son-in-law in the administration. So I think that makes all of this worse. Not only that, but you know, his daughter Ivanka had, I think, something like 16 patents that were fast-tracked in China. You know, Kellyanne Conway, who was a official 
part of the Trump administration, went on TV and flacked Ivanka's products. And then the most egregious example probably is how right after the Trump administration ended, uh, Jared Kushner, the president's uh, son-in-law, got a two, was it two billion dollar investment from the Saudi fund? So that looks very, very bad. Say what you will about the Bidens. But even if they're guilty of everything, we're talking millions. This is billions from the Saudis. So first, I look back these seven years, the 2016 race, the discussion about the Clinton Foundation, all the way to today, we've been bathing in in nepotism and influence peddling um, and and from the Trump children to the Bidens. And and now Donald Trump is enjoying his post presidential earnings like Bill Clinton did and Obama did and vice presidential post vice presidential earnings that that Biden did. But he's running for president while earning money from the Saudis. Have we just become numb to this? I think we have. And I do think, you know, you mentioned the Clintons, the Clinton Foundation, Hillary, it was taking in foreign money um, at a time when it was assumed that Hillary would be the next president. So, yeah, I think we've become inured to this. I mean, I went back and looked um, after Ronald Reagan left the White House. He went to Japan and made like two million dollars on speeches. And I don't know if you remember this, A.B. It was an outrage. People were up in arms that Reagan made two million, something like two million dollars from giving speeches. And now that was that's chump change. That's nothing. First of all, it's perfectly on the up and up you know, in terms of ethics and, and legality. Um, but uh, but the amount is just, you know, it's it's a pittance compared to uh, to our filthy rich politicians today. It's amazing. So we just lost the capacity to be outraged. And as a result, I mean, talk a little bit about this, right? As a result, we, we just expect them. Um, we're not we're not policing them. We expect it. And then that just gives rise to a lot of resentment and populist anger. And, yeah. But we're not actually bringing back that those standards uh, of, you know, what is really within the bounds of reason. Yeah. I think that um, apathy is a really bad thing uh, because it means we've given up. Like, I, I don't think that when we say we've gotten used to it, I don't think we're happy with it. I think we've given up hope. And, you know... I don't I'm not an historian. I'm not an expert on Rome and that sort of thing. But in the book, I do I do go back a little bit and look at the founders of this country. And um, of course, they were students of Greece and Rome and and why uh, democracies or republics fall and fail. And one of the things one of the main things that they point to uh, is public officials who are cashing in is the grift. Exactly. And so this, you know, I don't want to like be overwrought, but there's a danger that like if we want to preserve this miracle that I believe we have, um, people can't people can't have given up on or just all those are just of course, politicians are cashing in. Of course, they're getting rich. Of course, they're paying their families. Like at some point there will be consequences to that. And at some point we should expect something more. We should. Um, but you're right. And I agree with you um, that America is a miracle and that, that there's so much that you that I'm about to quote from your book um, that is that I think is really, really uplifting. Um, but on a dark note, like you, I'm very concerned about the effects of social media on our society and on our politics. And you wrote in the last few years, 
have led me to question my faith in the American public's ability to vet and remove truly bad actors from public office. Can you elaborate on that? Right. Well, that's why I changed my mind about something, which is um, term limits. For my whole life, my whole career, I have been against term limits, partly because I felt like, well, we have term limits. They're called elections. Every two years, the American public gets to have a voice in the House of Representatives every two years. Uh, And if they like somebody, if somebody's doing a good job, like why shouldn't they be allowed to return that person to office? Um, I also worried that getting rid of of politicians, pushing them out after a few terms, would have like this unintended consequence of a permanent bureaucracy where there's staffers and lobbyists who become the experts who really run the show. They're there forever. They don't go away. And then we just bring in these politicians and there's no way they could compete. So I, for the longest time, I was against term limits. When I started writing this book, I think it pushed me over uh, the top. And now I do favor term limits. And, And partly because it really mitigates the amount of damage a politician can do when it comes to cashing in and spreading the wealth around. Um, You know, if you only have a few terms, you're not going to be able to really have generational wealth come from that opportunity. But social media is limiting the ability of our citizenry to have to know the truth. And that's why it's it is becoming harder and harder for them to vet candidates for office and and hold them accountable they can like you were talking about there they'll just be a facebook meme and yep. no one really know what is exactly true about this guy's past we hope george santos will be yeah. a cautionary tale you write that the key is to institute policies that mitigate our human nature and reward civilized and ethical behavior talk us through some of the reforms that sure. you outline in the book well, first, let me say, I think it's important to kind of understand my worldview as a I'm a Christian, maybe not a great one, but I'm one. I'm a conservative. I'd like to think I'm a good one, but a lot of people think I'm not a very good conservative either. But it, as a, you know, as a Christian conservative, I have a certain worldview. Right. So like, I don't believe in the perfectibility of man. I believe that we are we live in a fallen world um, and we're not going to be perfect and we're not going to have perfect politicians. And so just like Adam Smith believe with economics that, you know, greed, he didn't think, he wasn't Gordon Gecko. He didn't think greed is good. He thought greed exists. We can't get rid of it. It's human nature. Therefore, let's channel that into people being greedy so that they'll invent a cure for cancer or something, right? Um, Let's tap into human nature as best we can. So that's the approach that I take. With the reforms that I uh, am calling for, I do not think that we can fix the problem of filthy rich politicians or that we can end the corruption, right? I mean, like murder is illegal, but murders sadly still happen. But policies could affect the number of murders in terms of criminal justice reform. Similarly, when it comes to policing Congress, we're not going to fix corruption forever. But I do believe that reforms can help. So we've talked about a few of them here. One of them would be banning individual stock trading for politicians and their immediate families, right? Now, we don't have to police it. Was that insider trading or not? Well, you can't do it. So that's off the table. Um, Same thing with book deals. If you're a member of Congress, you can write a book, um, but you're not going to get rich. You're not going to get filthy rich off of of writing that book and having 
your political action committee or the national Republican campaign committee or whatever buy 5,000, 300,000, however many copies. We're going to have term limits, which would, if nothing else, limit the damage that someone could do if they're hell-bent uh, on cashing in. Um, there are a bunch of little things. Like, here's one is double-dipping on pensions. Uh, there are a lot of people in Congress who are earning a pension from Congress, which seems fair, right? They've worked their job for X number of years and they've earned it. But before that, they were in the state house where they were also earning a pension. So they're getting two checks from the taxpayers. Um, that's the kind of thing that I would end. Uh, I think that one more that I believe I mentioned earlier is a moratorium on lobbying. There's a lot of people who cash in as politicians, then they leave Congress and they keep on cashing in on K Street. I believe there should be, right now it's one, depending on whether you're in the House or Senate, there's a one or two year cooling off period. Some people like AOC and Ted Cruz on the left and the right would like to do a lifetime ban. I think there should be a 10-year moratorium on lobbying. So you shouldn't be able to like walk out of Congress one day and start lobbying your buddies uh, and your friends from Congress the next day. So there's a whole bunch of these outlined in the book. Um, and I don't think they will fix the problem. I think that they will begin to restore trust in the system. And that, that's as good as we can hope for. So, Matt, how can people who are discouraged uh, sort of get involved with reform? Should they research them and try to see if they can sign petitions to give them some agency? Step one is clearly buy my book. Oh, you know, no question. Responsive. Yeah. That's your guidebook. Yeah. Um, I think, and this is not something that is really addressed in the book. Like, I talk about what reforms I call for. Right. I don't lay out sort of how how would you be a grassroots activist. Um, but I think that uh, rather than spreading yourself very thin, it would be to focus on the stock trading, because I think that is by far the most corrosive thing that is happening. Uh, and become, if you really care about this issue, be a single issue voter on that. And call your congressperson, email them, show up at their rallies or speeches or whatever and talk about this part of the game is the messed up part and i'll I'll let you in on a little um sort of it's an admission against interest uh it's a not flattering uh admission by me but as i was writing this book there came a point where i started to be like Oh my! What if Congress actually bans stock trading before my book comes out? Oh, I, I, that'd be so <laughs> no, funny. No, I'm rooting against you. And and but luckily for me, there was no chance of that because um, even though almost every member of Congress says now, they, even Nan- even Nancy Pelosi right. now has been pushed by the left into saying she wants to ban stock trading. Everyone says it, but it never happens. The bill's never quite right. In some cases, there might even be a poison pill put in there to make it untenable. Um, And so everybody will say they're for it. How do they actually vote? And do they make it a priority? And in addition to lobbying, um, please explain to the rest of us how this particular species of person can raise vast sums of other people's money a lot of the time. And then when the campaign's over, use those to to bolster their brands and their careers. Right. I think a lot of people don't know that those dollars actually stay with them. Yeah. Well, you know, it used to, you, you would know this, A.B., most Americans probably don't know that 
until like around 1980, members of Congress could raise millions of campaign dollars and retire and keep the money personally. There was nothing illegal about it. They could just transfer it into their personal bank account. Insane. So things have gotten better <laughs> right. than they used to be. Um, but we're talking about people who leave Congress but keep cashing in. We've talked about lobbying. That's the, the number one way. <clears throat> and it's something like a, third, a quarter to a third of members of Congress go into lobbying after they leave. Uh, on top of that, we have people who start these foundations, right? We've talked about the Clinton Foundation, but members, you don't have to be the president to start a foundation. You could start a foundation if you're a former governor or congressman. That's another thing. But what we're talking about right now are basically members of Congress who raise hundreds of thousands of dollars or millions of dollars for their campaign, and then they retire, and they've still got all this money left over. It's amazing. And rather than giving it to a charity or just giving it away right now to the party or to other candidates or whatever would be legal, they keep that money. And the reason they keep it is that they're allowed to basically give it out over the course of years. So you can essentially be a bigwig. You could say, like, you know, I like Ron DeSantis or, you know, I like Vivek Ramaswamy. And so I'm going to go out using my money, the campaign money, someone else's money, but now it's mine. I'm going to go stay in Orlando for a week and go to this retreat. <laughs> and then while I'm there, I'm going to give him a million dollars or whatever. And now I'm treated like a bigwig. I get to pretend that I'm a big, rich donor. It's not really my money, but I get to live the lifestyle. We have a whole chapter in the book about the lifestyle. Some of this you know, there's different reasons people, there's different definitions of being rich. You know, oh, yeah. some people want to be rich because uh, they want to sa- safety and security for the you know, rest of their lives. You know, some of them um, want to just go to Ritz Carlton or what was the, the hand lotion? You know, yeah. uh, they want to eat at La Diplomat, uh, fancy restaurants, and they want to be treated well. They want to go on rich vacation vacations that are funded by uh, campaign dollars or taxpayer dollars, depending on how they work it. It could go either way. And so, uh, and then, then I think there's also the attention economy now more than ever, where people are, they're rich, not just in dollars, but they're rich in terms of their social media clout. Uh, and certainly that is a big motivator for a new breed of politician. Yeah. It, I remember Governor Bob McDonnell of Virginia, um, He and his wife just wanted to go to those golf clubs. And and it is part of it, as you describe in the book, they're hanging out with people that are really wealthy. And soon, pretty soon, they feel like they should have a driver and a car pick them up as well. Um, And they should play tennis at that country club as well. It's kind of, it it infects you. Um, Have any um, politicians, I was interested about the Mitch McConnell, um, have some of them marry into wealth, and it's not that it's it's the, the business deals they're doing, but um, it's spouses or they've inherited uh, great yeah. sums. That, that, that's a lot. In fact, I rank at the end of the book, I rank, uh, well, it's not, I didn't rank, it's Business Insider ranked the right. richest 25 members of Congress. And then I went in and sort of explained how they got their money. And um, more than half of them either inherited it 
or married into money. And so, like, in a lot of cases, it's rich father-in-laws, too. Like, Richard Blumenthal's father-in-law is Peter Malkin. He essentially owned the Empire State Building at one point. Um, You've got uh, uh, McCall, Congressman McCall out of Texas. Um, uh, I think his his father-in-law owns Clear Channel or something like that. Um, Mitch McConnell, after being a U.S. senator, marries Elaine Chao. That's where his money comes from. And and this is interesting because there is a conspiracy theory that's like, I know. how did Mitch McConnell suddenly get so rich? And the answer is that his wife's mom died. Yeah. And he inherit and then they inherited a lot of money. Um, and so, like, on one hand, it's swampy. On the other hand, it's not nearly as crazy and conspiratorial as some people would have you believe. Not at all. Yeah. I mean, they, they they just inherited a bucket. But yeah. it is interesting. There are all these, yeah, these conspiracy Ro, stories. Rokana is another example. A very yeah. prominent young, I think, California congressman. Most of his money is from his wife. Um, but look, there's a tradition of this. Lyndon Johnson would not have been president without Lady Bird Johnson's dowry. Right. So. Well, um, you are... Um, you're optimistic, which I really appreciate, as I've said several times. You write, in today's politics on both sides of the aisle, it seems the cool kids have settled on a false choice. We can look the other way while more and more Americans lose faith in institutions or we can wise up and start a revolution. I prefer the third option, to acknowledge our problems and fix them. That's the case for tax reform. So lay it out for us. Right. So, um, you know, again... Just like I'm not uh, an expert on the stock market, I'm not an expert on tax law, but you don't have to be to know that you're getting, uh, I won't use a bad word, but the American, normal Americans who work for a living are getting the short end of the stick. Uh, the way it works is if most of your money is derived from investment income, you end up paying a lower tax rate than those of us who actually work for a living and earn a salary. And it just so happens that most of the money that most members of Congress have are earned from investments, not from a salary. Therefore, your filthy rich politician, generally speaking, is not only richer than you, not only 12 times richer than you, but pays a lower tax rate than you or me or their member, their average constituent. And I think I think that's wrong. Um, I'm not saying that we should raise their. I, I'd like. To, I'm, I'm generally in favor of lowering taxes, by the way. But I think everyone should pay uh, the, the, the same rate. That the, the guy who's a carpenter or a plumber shouldn't pay more money than someone who made a smart investment off of Microsoft or Tesla. Um, and I think it would go a long way toward restoring trust in the system if that were the case. And by the way, I should say that. Uh, There was a movement to fix this problem fairly recently, excuse me, and it was Kristen Sinema who stopped it. Right. That's an interesting thing, right, that you write in there that it's great for the people who are in Congress to keep it the way that it is, uh, but maybe it would make a great outsider uh, presidential campaign platform. It would. So finally, you say, my most important advice is not to succumb to bitterness, And given a choice between naive trust in the American system and cynicism toward the fat cats and the ruling class, trust is better. Why should we still trust? Well, first of all, let me say that I hope that people who are angry 
who are populists who read the subtitle and love the subtitle buy the book, right? I want them to buy the book. I do too. <clears throat> and I want them to go like, let's give it to Nancy Pelosi. Let's give it to Richard Burr, those fat cats, ruling class, latte liberals. It's fine if you go into this fired up. But my hope is um, that you will be fired up enough to push for these reforms without in engaging yourself in the politics of victimhood and bitterness and envy. And if for no other reason, like not only is that toxic for the nation, it's really bad for you as an individual. Like if you believe that the game is rigged against you and that nothing, there's nothing you can do to get ahead and that the fat cats, it's, it's already, it's over before it started. Um, that doesn't lead you anywhere good. Uh, so Politics is important. It's worth the fighting for. Don't let it drive you crazy. Well done. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this week's Afterwards podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, listen to C-SPAN's podcast about books. Learn about the latest nonfiction books and best-selling authors. In each episode, we report on bestsellers lists and book reviews from around the country. You'll also hear authors talking about their latest books and insider interviews with nonfiction book publishing industry experts. 